0: Cuba's widespread popular protests in July, the biggest in decades, were quashed by Cuba's communist regime.
1: You know, and the 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 legitimacy of Fidel is not his charisma. I mean, could you guys give me a break with that? You know, it's it's not. Oh well. It's the fact that he had nothing to make up. You know, people had lived and breathed, you know, the struggle of Cuba for freedom, and very heartily were convinced that it wasn't the American people. It was the United States government and its alliance with U.S. companies that was preventing Cuba from being what it could have been. Um, so people are so committed to that, that in the end, I think the majority of Cubans, perhaps not the middle class, but the majority, or, or the upper class, clearly, but the, the majority of Cubans um, were very committed to radical change, even if that meant, they did not even know what it meant, but, you know, with the embrace of communism.
0: Did you know that Fidel Castro, the first secretary of the Communist Party in Cuba, initially refused to categorize his regime as socialist and even repeatedly denied being a communist? Hey there, Newspeelers. Today is July 30, 2021, and this is Adele, host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world, who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peeling the History Behind News, the histories of many countries we read, watch and hear about in our news media, for example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's and China's histories. And of course several series on the u.s economy culture politics environment science and much more i'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone so grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it on july 11th demonstrations erupted across cuba Cubans spontaneously and most peacefully protested against their government for lack of freedom and also for their living conditions, which have significantly deteriorated due to the coronavirus pandemic. According to the Wall Street Journal, these protests have quieted down, no doubt due to the crackdown by Cuba's communist government, which has disrupted Cubans' internet service, and according to estimates, some 600 demonstrators and activists have been detained. And in summary trials, most have been charged with broad offenses, such as public disorder or disobedience, and others face more serious charges, such as attacking police officers, looting, or destroying government property. The Biden administration has responded to Cuba's human rights violations during its crackdown by issuing new sanctions against Cuba's defense minister and elite government security forces. But some Cuban Americans who protested in Miami's Little Havana and elsewhere are calling for the U.S. to do more, to intervene militarily. To better understand the history of Cuba, the history of America's military intervention in Cuba, and the history of the influence of Cuban exiles on America's foreign policy towards Cuba, we spoke with Dr. Lillian Guerra. She's a professor at the Department of History in the University of Florida. Dr. Guerra has written widely on the history of Cuba, including three books, one of which received a highly prestigious award for a book on Latin American studies. She's currently working on her fourth book on Cuba's history. In her creative writings, Dr. Guerra has contributed to the work of Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer, and she has also published a book of short stories. A link to Dr. Guerra's academic homepage, which includes the titles of her numerous publications and many awards and accomplishments, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So. Stay with me as Dr. Guerra and I peel the history behind this news.
2: The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast.
0: Professor Guerra, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Um, Cuba's uprising is on the news, and rightfully so. Us Americans don't really keep up with the news with our of our neighboring countries, especially one that is as important as Cuba. When I look at Cuba's history to better understand this developing news, and I'm an outsider, I'm not Cuban, one of the things that almost immediately jumps out at me is that unlike, let's say, Venezuela, Peru, or, or or Chile, that gained their independence from the Spanish Empire early on in the 1810s and 1820s? Cuba remained a colony of Spain almost until the 20th century. Why was that the case?
1: There well, is a very easy answer for that, and it's slavery. Um, the Cuban planting elite especially that concentrated in Havana, really emerges as um, a kind of pivotal elite in terms of Spain's ability to garner revenue in the 1760s. And it is ultimately the result of not tobacco, but of sugar. Um, And the fact that the English invaded uh, Havana and held Havana for eight months um, in 1763, and this turned out to be um, just spectacular for planters and the uh, what would become the plantocracy. Because the were-
0: English invaded Havana. This is while Havana is still part of the Spanish Empire.
1: Yes. They would have liked and- to have taken the whole island. But all they got was Havana. And they held it. And not just the city, but the Havana province. And they had the utter support. Of, of this local um, plantocracy, you know, the small kind of rustic sugar planters. They didn't have very many slaves. The main reason for that was that the Spanish did not allow them to import slaves at the scale that they needed in order to make sugar really the main crop of the island. And, and Spain had used Cuba as really sort of a depot for shipping goods. I mean, most of the stuff, including most of the gold and most of the silver, they came from uh, mainland America, passed through the port of Havana. So Havana was a trading port, but it really, the, the whole island was really underdeveloped. Uh, it was a backwater in the Spanish empire. And the only thing that made a lot of backwater, money, um, interesting. Yeah. The only thing that made a lot of money was tobacco. Um, And tobacco was not grown primarily by slaves. Um, It was was grown either by cooperative farmers out in Oriente Province, which is the far eastern province of the island, or it was mostly grown by small farmers, small-time farmers, some of whom owned a few slaves. But the nature of the crop was not one that was labor-intensive. It was more about the quality-intensive, growing and cultivation and picking. So you couldn't you know beat your slaves and um, expect them to expect them to not retaliate by, by picking you know the, the tobacco and bruising it and you couldn't bruise it. You, to this day you have to treat tobacco like it's a baby. So that was the story until 1763. These small- time planters had attempted to create um, sugar plantations and to compete with, with, with what was then, The great sugar producer of the world, which was contemporary Haiti, it was Saint-Domingue, a French colony really close to them, Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. off of the shores of eastern Cuba. And they had really been unable to uh, until 1763 when the British take Havana. And literally in eight months, the local planters are able to import uh, about 15 times the slaves that they had previously imported in the last decade. So the reality was that the, the sort of explosion in the number and access to slaves was the result of, of what the British were very famous for, which was the slave trade. And this, the, the British dominated the slave trade. The Spanish prevented the British from selling their slaves to Spanish colonists in, and, and Cuban uh, planters uh, on the island of Cuba. And then when, when the, 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 the Spanish retake Havana, um, that was their concession. The Spanish concede to the local planting elite the right, in fact, to buy slaves and not just from Portuguese or Spanish dealers. You know, from from British slave traders. So you get this huge importation of slaves, and you get the furthering of, of the commitment to uh, to sugar, precisely because the wealth that this produces was on a scale that had never really been seen. Um, and by the 1780s, so this is prior to you know the Haitian Revolution. It's prior to um, you know the independence of Haiti or any of that. They're still competing with Saint-Domingue, the French colony. But but in that period, these local planters then make it their goal to eliminate uh, the competition that the tobacco growers have. They want to take their land, and and they do that very successfully. Um, uh, you know, they basically hire a bunch of thugs to go out and burn the entire tobacco crop. And and, based and so what then- you're saying
0: is that the tobacco Farmers are, 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 are some of them are in a smaller scale. So probably taking their land is easier. Did I did I understood that well, correctly? To take
1: their land, take their land and, and hold it, you know, they, they have to be able to have legal authority over this land. So they need mm-hmm. to be owners. And the tobacco farmers, you know, had had the year of Spain. This is all, you know, until the 1760s, 1770s. And they had and the Spanish had a very successful monopoly on the sale of tobacco. So that was true as of the seventeen teens, and and so the tobacco farmers were legit, you know, and they had they had mm-hmm, property mm-hmm. rights. And the sugar planters are seeing them as a threat to their wealth. So to increase their wealth, these sugar planters, uh, by the seventeen seventies and seventeen eighties, really launch a campaign um, that's two pronged. One is to convince the Spanish to let them have access to slaves on a huge scale, um, and they get that. And then the next is to eliminate their competitors for, for the political interests of Spain. And that would be to launch this offensive, a uh, criminal offensive of just simply burning down the crops of, of the tobacco farmers, and then forcing them, because they would be impoverished, to sell their land. And they So,
0: do. so I, uh, I need to ask a sort of a clarifying question here. Was the Spanish Empire not actively engaged in the slave trade in the past. So that's why the 1763 uh, invasion of the Havana province makes such a big difference. Is that, is that a distinguishing factor between the Spanish empire and the British empires, the yeah, slave okay, trade? If
1: you, right. If you think about where is Spain in the 18th century? Well, it's everywhere. It holds the largest empire in the world. The British are, have been desperate you know, <laughs> to compete. You know, since the, 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 since a couple hundred years earlier, they had been able to establish footholds in the Caribbean um, and basically had succeeded in creating some sugar colonies. About a century after um, sugar colonies had been developed um, in Brazil, which is a Portuguese colony, not part of, of the Spanish Empire, so the British were really committed to trying to extend their sugar. Um, dominance. And they then turn to the slave trade as a main reinforcer, a main supplier, a main kind of it, it, critical sec- sector of their of their capital, what is becoming a capitalist um, kind of a system. So, the, but nonetheless, the British are really absent, except for their 13 colonies, you know, that produce some furs and a few yeah. of tobacco, right? And the Spanish had been really unrivaled in the mainland Um, from, you know, the 1500s or 1520s when they conquer um, Mexica territory, the Aztec Empire, and the 1530s and 40s when they take the Peruvian Inca Empire. And their main, um, really until the 18th century, their main products from both of those regions is silver. Um, They were very uninterested. in in agricultural production or in agro-export regimes. um, You know, they were, that was their big, you know, they had a huge silver mine in Zacatecas, which is north of Mexico City, by the late 1500s. They have, you know, giant amounts of silver coming out of Bolivia, contemporary Bolivia, um, in Potosí, where they have the largest silver mine ever discovered in the world. So it's not until the 18th century, when Spain begins, in fact, to revisit its economic regime, and it has to do so because in the 18th century Spain would be deeply indebted, deeply indebted, and so they also see that there are opportunities for the loss of their imperial authority in in Spanish colonies, um, not just because of the obvious injustice um, that on which it was founded. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but on the fact that you had a couple of things going on, you had. Um, uh, indigenous recovery in terms of uh, numbers. I mean, really, you had declines in indigenous populations that were, were really decimated
0: early on when the Spanish came. Yeah. So the population is not, really,
1: not just early on. They, they You continue to have, you know, very, very um, unsustainable levels of population um, until the 18th century. It's when you you see this rising number of not just indigenous groups. Um, which recover, you know, they begin to to thrive as communities at least as far as replacing their numbers. But you also have this huge number of people who don't know their you know their their identity to Spain. Um, and and they also sort of identify or could identify with indigenous people. And so that becomes oh bad. you mean
0: Spaniards that had now lived in the Americas for generations and generations. So they're sort of detached from, "Quote unquote," the mother country,
2: and they're
1: not legally Spaniards. They're criollos. They're people which who means are what Spanish. There are people who are of Spanish ancestry and legally considered sort of a second tier to those who are peninsulares. Oh, then you have a much larger group, the majority, really, in some locations in in, main, in the mainland of, of Spanish America, um, that are all kinds of, of combinations, so mestizos, which is sort of the simple. You know, combination of somebody of Spanish, predominantly Spanish ancestry, and somebody of predominantly indigenous ancestry. But the Spanish were extraordinary about trying to track and control um, the numbers and types of people that might be the product of this sort of racial breed interbreeding. Of right, so they had wow. more than five hundred different legal categories by the eighteenth century of castas, people who were some. Part indigenous, some part Spanish, some part African, and some combination in there. So if you take a a very simple term like mestizo, which implies the Spanish indigenous ancestry, you look at the word mulato. Mulato is literally derived from the word mule, mulo, and it is supposed to be somebody who is half black and half white, half Spanish. It's a terrible
0: term. It's derived from mule.
1: Yes, and and worse, you get all kinds of terms that we've lost. But there was the word noble, which is a wolf, um, somebody who is um, it, it part indigenous and part African. Um, you have. So you say
0: that there are five hundred different sort of classifications uh, yeah. categories. Are are there different power bases and rights within each region that comes based on that classification?
1: Well, the Spanish were trying to standardize. <laughs> they were trying to keep people from having sex with each other. They were trying to discourage this by any means necessary. And, of course, one of the means is to allow for certain co- communities of people um, to have legal rights so that, that differ from those of others. So you really have a three-tiered system. You have peninsulars at the top who are people who are born in Spain. And who will likely return to Spain. And that's the smallest group. Maybe we have 10,000, you know, in the 18th century and all of Spanish America. And these are the highest bureaucrats. Oftentimes they they would buy buy their position in the Spanish civil service, we could say, in America in order to milk everybody else dry where they were there and then return to Spain with their money, their loot, you know. So it's based on. a... It's so let's say they're body.
0: governor of province of a province or, or whatever. Yes. They actually bought that commission.
1: They bought their positions. Interesting. But okay. I mean, people who are sort of middling managerial posts also would do the same. Um, so you have you have that group. Then you have the criollos, which is you know a, a larger group of people, but also not huge. You know these are people who can actually show. That they have no mixing, that their parents are, even if they for generations have been born in America, their parents or grandparents, everybody's clean. They have clean, I love that. Yes, and and the cleanliness of the blood was a particular uh, legal uh, status and you had to be able to prove it and you even got to carry on this piece of paper Um, If you looked a little suspicious, maybe you had a little bit of Arab blood because not everybody in Spain is actually that white (laughs) (laughs) piece of paper. And then you have the huge number of the 500 and so categories of castes. And those folks have virtually no rights. They have, um, you know, they have more. And I should say this is not three tiers. They're really four tiers. The cast. So the very top. They get to do all kinds of stuff. They get to hold these positions. They get to wear swords. They get to have blue. They get to wear blue and purple. Um, and, and they have the rights that, that the Spanish crown endows, basically the equals of the nobility of Spain. The, the mestizo group, which lies below both the peninsulars and the criollos, and the criollos sort of have a secondary status, but they also have you know, rights um, similar to those of, of those, the peninsulars. Um, but the people who are mestizo, mulatto, the castas, they they have very few legal rights whatsoever, and and the only thing that distinguishes them from the lowest of the low, which would be people who are enslaved Africans or indigenous people, and and literally the last letter, letter or level of the of the pyramid um, is the, the the bottom of the pyramid pyramid is the República de Indios, the Republic of Indians. And then, you know, even below that are enslaved Africans. So that the last foundation of the whole pyramid is is a huge group of people. Uh, But in mainland America, it's not so much enslaved Africans as it is indigenous people. And indigenous people for 300 years um, or more, depending when, you know, uh, the countries of, or the colonies of mainland Spanish America became free. um, These people owed a head tax to the Spanish crown um, simply, effectively, for existing, they had to do labor um, for either no money or for a kind of a joke, you know, a, a pittance. Um, is this and, and called the
0: uh, what is it? The corvee system? Am I saying that correctly? No, there? it's oh. actually
1: mita. The mita. mita. Okay. Yeah, corvee is a French term and really much more applicable to um, like Saint-Domingue and French colonies. I see. I really see. Much later, but but in in Spanish America. You know, if you were of indigenous ancestry for four up to four months of the year, um, you had to go work in mines. Um, that was your principle for at least the majority of the time that the Spanish ruled. And you had, you know, they didn't supply you with enough food. You know, you didn't go just as a single male. You often had to drag your your wife and maybe one child along with you, um, who would wash your clothes and feed you. And you worked in the mines. I mean, with under horrific circumstances. Um, you often had repercussions for that time that you're working. And this is for years, you know, from the time you're, you know, in your middle teens, you know, 15, 16 years old, all the way through um, until you're, you know, over 30, um, sometimes 40, uh, if you live that long. And you were required to go. You were sent by your local um, village, headman, who is called a cacique. And, you know, and indigenous people fought this tooth and nail to reduce the number of people who had to go, to try to reduce and create conditions for those who went. But it was a reality that the head tax um, was something that distinguished, you know, this group, the, the Indians, the native peoples, as somehow subhuman from all the rest, because everybody else above them, except for the enslaved Africans, was either acculturated to some degree or they were part Spanish, and that made them real humans, real potential subjects, if not subjects of the crown.
0: So what I drive from what you shared with me, the comparison between mainland America, Central and South America versus Cuba, is that the concept of slavery in the Spanish Empire really took hold in cuba in contrast to other uh, colonies and provinces what have you and and sort of exploded into an economic force onto itself after uh, the temporary invasion of havana by the british in 1763. is that yes. is, is is that a fair sort of assessment of a distinct a big distinguishing factor
1: yes i mean it's undoubtedly the case that in mainland america Spanish America, wherever you grew sugar, you wanted to grow it with enslaved Africans. But it was also the case that none of these locations um, for the production of sugar either were that profitable or had the ear of Spain the importance that perhaps they might have acquired if they were seen by by local Spaniards as significant um, to the overall economy. It's not until really in the 18th century. When the British in Jamaica, you know, are blowing everybody out of the water between their spectacular production of sugar um, and the slave trade. And then San Domingo, which is the world's largest producer of sugar, and it's only one third of the island of Hispaniola, and it's the largest producer of sugar. Now, why does this matter so much? Because sugar is really, um, in fact, when you think about it, even logically, it is the substitute for food that allowed for Irish and Scottish and poor British workers to work in those uh, mills. The first um, textile mills that are the engine of cap- the capitalist system in Europe um, are largely in what we would call the United Kingdom today. And what these people were eating was a ton of sugar. Um, what often, did they mix
0: it with and what sort of food? State yeah, often
1: it? with tea. You know, tea was the other big product of the British expansion globally, and it, China, as well as India, would produce tea. Um, the, this is a stimulant, as is sugar, and you pit them together and you give, you know, children and young people who have to work in these mills, um, tea breaks, <laughs> you don't give them food, but every, you know, four hours out of their, three hours out of their 14 to 16 hour shift, you're giving them tea with sugar, and that enables this. It's like the engine of capitalism, the combination oh, wow. of the um, and and so it really was essential, and and became you know that's why these sugar colonies, the sugar islands of the Caribbean become so important to the British. And then there's tons of money to be made from the slave trade, just the selling of these individuals, because none of the, I mean, we also get this wrong in the United States. We like to think that our system of slavery was identical everywhere and replicate No, Um, In the United States, the the slave population was self-reproducing and in part that's because we had a revolution and we ended the slave trade in 1807, 1808. Um, so you had to, if you were owner of slaves you had to allow them to reproduce so that you would have you know babies who could grow up to be um, no, that wasn't
0: kids. the case in Cuba
1: not at all and it wasn't the case wow. anywhere. anywhere in the sugar island. Do,
0: I don't understand what people do people. you mean by that so you mean uh, a, 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 a man and a woman and an enslaved man and a woman could not have a baby
1: well the reality was that sh- wherever you were growing sugar uh-huh. um, you were trying to import um, laborers who you could work to death. And again, we weren't growing sugar in the 13 colonies and we weren't growing sugar, um, you know, we we're growing cotton, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so sugar, however, the sugar islands um, in Cuba, for instance, in slave plantations, the, the most of the, what's called the dotacion, the, the, all of the, the, the slaves that would work on a plantation, you know, up to 96% were male. And they were male because they were there as machines to cut sugarcane and to work in um, the sugar mill and produce this white powdery stu- uh, substance that could be sold abroad, as well as the brown version, which is cheaper and, and yeah, the first sort of step in the process. You had very few women on plantations. And that when was you did
0: fascinating. Women-
1: they worked in they worked largely in in um, the house which was not the location either of the planter the planters of Cuba tended to visit their plantations same was true of French planters they were somewhat absentee um, the French and the British planters tended to live you know often not even in, in the colony they would live in in their home country when you get plantations in in Cuba um, and the rise of the massive plantations that would generate wealth so spectacular that would rival, you know, Queen Victoria's wealth by the 1840s. When you get that, you get that in Western Cuba. And, and these planters would live in Havana. They um, lived as far as they could from their plantations because they were so wealthy. You know, they, they didn't want to be near that kind of horror of, you know, they were too good for that. Um, They didn't want to have anything to do with, you know, what it took. To produce their wealth and so they would usually visit their plantations only twice a year at Easter and at Christmas Um, and in part it's because the Christmas holiday is when they would launch the harvest Mm -hmm. and Easter is when it would end and then they would also they had a kind of a Catholic or Catholicized understanding of their role in society they had all kinds of views of themselves which we could talk about but it's western Cuba and particularly central Cuba which is called the Valley of, of the Sugar Mills, and by Little los Ingenios, still called that, um, as well as the province of Havana, um, that are the main motor and the generator of plantations and sugar um, and slavery from, you know, the 1760s through, you know, the 1860s. And, and Eastern Cuba um, survives as a place, Far Eastern Cuba, Oriente, Mm-hmm. Um, away. They survive as, as places where you have three different crops being produced. You have tobacco, you have coffee, and you have sugar. And the plantations were relatively small. They had many fewer slaves than those of the West. And in fact, the more wealth got ge- that got generated in the West, um, the less likely those Eastern planters were to compete with that wealth. Um, so you had in the West something that I like to call the Walmart effect, the uh, Walmart effect. The Walmart effect of sugar planting, which is that these planters, by the 1830s and 1840s, are making so much money in the West that they start to get together and decide, okay, we should be kind of a cartel. We should decide, you know, what our prices should be, who are, you know, so we could cooperate. Why should we be competing, right? And we could help each other. Um, and in fact, they did that very successfully. And they drove out a lot of the smaller planters, um, the, small, the, the sort of smaller time planters um, by the 1850s and 1860s. And, and I'll say one more thing, which is that there's a big, big change in the, the, the nature of the world market for mm-hmm. sugar that happens in, in the 1850s. And that is that um, until the 1850s, you know, sugar cane had no competitors. You know, that that was the, 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 the agricultural product that produced your sugar. And then suddenly in 1853, you know, France and Germany start producing beet sugar. And beet
0: sugar, yeah. Beet
1: sugar. So that drops the price of sugar. And that also then you get a second Walmart effect, which is that the, the big Walmart plantations of the West have that have been cooperating as if they're like one big company for decades, they suddenly have to, they can, you know, can they can produce sugar at such a high rate that they can compete, even if the price is lower globally, they can compete with that beet sugar. And who can't? The guys in the East. So those sugar planters in the East, you know, who are surrounded by coffee plantations and, and, and we'll call them farms because they're not really plantations. They they got lots of tobacco, you know. They're in the east, and they by the 1860s are mostly bankrupt. Um, and the planters in the east aren't in the east are not um, really looking to sell their plantations. That by then you have a kind of political shift um, that's happening in the east, where they are some of them are going to be the big nationalist leaders of the independence movement that would um, really engulf the the eastern part of the island from. Uh, And really, the whole east eastern half of the island from eighteen sixty eight to eighteen
0: ninety eight. We recently did a podcast episode on the history of Haiti, and as you are educating me about the significance of sugar, which is really founded literally on the back backs of slaves. Did did I guess this is my question? Did Cuba get Lucky a windfall when Haiti went through went through that tumultuous revolution and it had disruption of its sugar industry. I think it was 1804 and on. Did this sort of increase the significance and importance of Cuba's sugar industry?
1: Yes. So there are there are there are two things to say about Haiti. One is that the disruption doesn't happen with Haitian independence in 1804. The disruption happens from the moment that there are slave-led rebellions in Haiti from 1791 forward. There, see. There, you know, the revolution really begins in Haiti in 1789 and it coincides with the French Revolution. But it's really 1791 when in that summer you have slaves holding slave assemblies and issuing all kinds of directives about what they're going to do and how. And then you get this full-blown war, um, you know, until 1804. So in that period, Cuba. Really rises to the top, and and it's in that period that you get massive importations of of slaves, and they're all you know their their average lifespan once they arrive in Cuba is about seven years. I mean, they are five to seven years. They're worked to death, literally, and given that most of them you know are at the peak of their health, right, and youth, they're you know mm-hmm. late teens to mid twenties. Um, you can see just the, 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 the horror and the rigor of the brutality of, of the regime in Cuba. So then the other thing that happens is that after 1804, so it's the second kind of Haiti I- impact. After 1804, when Haiti becomes independent, it becomes you know universally seen as the pariah of all civilization because you have a black republic. yeah, um, yeah. And you have one utterly committed to abolition of slavery, not just in its own boundaries, but everywhere. You know, and the, the, slavery is anathema to citizenship, to liberty, to true freedom. Says Haiti, and of course, you know, Thomas Jefferson and all these folks who are in the United States—that sounds completely insane, since they <laughs> considered themselves to be like you know the, the the epitome of of divine providence and and the revelation of what true liberty was, and it was largely embodied by a white man. So. That you would have blacks not only rebelling, but also assuming leadership roles in what was what for Haiti and, and its leaders were true um, versions of civilization and and true declarations of freedom. That, you know, so you did, can did, imagine- did,
0: did Cuban slaves know about this? Uh, did, did, did this inspire them?
1: Surely, which is another reason um, that Haiti becomes, um, you know, really the enemy of of what sugar planters, like American revolutionaries, um, considered um, civilization. So um, there are many ways that that happened. But the two sort of most significant, probably, are that you have lots of um, Haitian planters who are um, themselves, unlike those of Cuba, where people of black ancestry can't own slaves. That's important. Um, in Saint-Domingue, the French Empire was so convinced that um, they would never have a slave rebellion and, and people of black descent were too, you know, stupid to ever engage in those kinds of revolutionary activities. They had allowed um, people who were free people of color in Haiti to, um, to own slaves. And in Haiti, they had grown, or in Saint-Domingue, the French colony, they had grown coffee. So they didn't compete with the white sugar planters in Haiti. And in 1804, you have a lot of refugees who um, leave Saint-Domingue, Haiti, um, for Cuba. And they are really what we would think of or what the Cubans called um, dusty. Uh, (laughs) Dusty. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they're dusty. Um, Empolvados is the word that my family used. But they go to two places. They go to Santiago de Cuba and they go to Cienfuegos, which is a city they found in 1817. Um, in the southern, um, on the southern coast of Cuba. Um, it is supposedly a French city. Um, and the Spanish are happy to take them because they bring their slaves, they bring their know-how, they bring their wealth, and they have all the same ideologies of the local planters and, and the Spanish um, um, royal, um, royal house. So this seems like it's going to be great, except that the people that they brought with them, who were their slaves, had all kinds of Knowledge and empathy, perhaps, and sympathy of, for what had happened, um, and the news spreads. And then you have a second um, vehicle for um, the creation of a, of a Black revolutionary consciousness that is very significant. And that is that in Cuba, all the folks who worked at the ports were royal slaves, stevedores, and they are 100% Black. They are mostly people who are from Africa. Um, they hoped. That they were. do you use hold. the term
0: royal slaves? What do you royal mean by royal
1: slaves? What so does they are like sort of owned by the Spanish government.
0: I see. Royal, as in the royal uh, family yes. and their institution of royalty. Yeah. I got it. Okay.
1: And they worked lifting all the heavy boxes and putting the sugar on the ships and everything. And a lot of these folks were literate. Um, they became literate. They spoke more than one language because they had to. They dealt with all of these people. I mean, you can imagine the amount of news that's coming in. And this matters because the Spanish were great at censorship. Like, censorship was their, their thing. <laughs> and so, you know, they were all about that. You know, a couple of bleeps in the 1880s where they, they allow for some, some free of freedom of the press and stuff. But, you know, 18 early 1800s through the 1860s, it's all about censorship. And so you don't have any reports really of what had happened in Sandeman. You have legal measures being taken to prevent um, similar events, but you don't have any kind of documentation. You have word of mouth and you have a local planting elite that in its private correspondence in Cuba is in connection with the news. You know, they know what's happening. They're freaking out. Um, And there are these major scares. You know, you have an intellectual elite in Havana that is also a planting elite that by the 1840s is a Desperate, they're, they're census watchers. They're taking censuses: how many white people, how many black people, how many free people of color, because they they, they are convinced by the 1840s that there could be a repeat you know, on their island of what happened in Saint Domingue, and and so actually
0: there are several uprisings. Uh, I, I bring this up because from an outsider looking in, you know, you think of revolution, Fidel Castro, Fidel Castro, but when you look, look read the 1800s, there's actually. Th- several revolutions actually do occur, and I want to, if I may please, bring up one of them. This is even before preparing. I realized that you actually wrote a book, and the title is really interesting: "The Myth of Jose Marti." It's a book that was that you published in two thousand five. I thought he was a big national hero in Cuba. Why do you say the myth?
1: Okay, so you know, really, the reality is that. From the 1840s to the 1860s, you have a hardening of the arteries of racism, of commitment to slavery, on the part of the planter class, um, on the part of the Spanish Empire. At that point, they've lost all of their colonies except for the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. And let's face it, Cuba is the only moneymaker. And in that those years, as well, you have both the legacies of earlier slave rebellions, and then you have the increasing. commitment of free people of color um, uh, to identifying with slaves and and to leading um, uh, together what appeared to be movements to topple slavery and to topple the Spanish. So this is just, you know, 10 years before José Martí is born. He's born in 1853. Um, The early 1840s, just when I mentioned that the um, Spanish and Creole planters of Mm -hmm. Cuba are freaking out that Haiti might repeat itself, they were not wrong. (laughs) <laughs> <You> know, tremendous, <laughs> yeah. evidence, tremendous evidence of widespread conspiracies and matanzas in 1844, um, the Creoles, the planting elite, the, the Spanish carry out a massive effort um, to interrogate torture to death and in jail and in, in prison, um, you know, literally about 12 to 14,000, um, either enslaved Africans wow. or free people of color. Um, Precisely because there was so much, it was clear to them that something was happening, and and they 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 try to cut it off at the knees, and it keeps coming back, and then they just boom, they dedicate eight months out of um, 1844 to this horrible campaign of terror. So along comes um, the 1850s, and it is important that Jose Marti was born in 1853, same year that beet sugar (laughs) developed. (laughs) And you have this deep consolidation, as I said, of a commitment to colonialism and, and, and slavery and, and uh, you know, on the part of the elite in Havana. His dad is a Spaniard. He works in the civil service. His mom is this you know Creole woman who's Cuban. He's not wealthy by any means. Um, he uh, radicalizes according to his own writings because when he's a young boy, his father goes off to a slave plantation outside of Havana, and you know most have, habaneros grew up without ever going out to a plantation. They had never really seen the brutality of slavery um, in, in, in the flesh. They had seen urban slavery, which was perhaps brutal, but it was in private that people would be beaten to death or raped, et cetera. And in the plantations is just like part of the regular day. So Good he goes out there and wow. uh, he's between nine and 10, wow. And his dad is, you know, is kind of a certified accountant. So he goes out and do this work, and he's a I mean, he's horrified. He's horrified. So now, is,
0: is is he a mixed race? Because you said his mom is creole. No, he's
1: white, totally Spanish. So he's Spanish on his father's side. Um, his father's a Peninsular, and his mother is Creole and was legally Creole. So she doesn't have any supposed ancestry that would other be other than Peninsular. But okay, uh,
0: so yeah. so Marty is is is, is He's a white dude. Clean. Okay, he's a white dude. Got it. All right.
1: And, and so, you know, in his process, and, and I think so to, to be expedient here, there, there are two things that happen that really matter to his emergence as a nationalist figure, as well as his mythification. And one is that when he's very young, he's 15, you know, he um, is being tutored by a, a, a Spanish tutor. Um, and uh, or rather pro, pro-independence um, guy who's, a, who's Creole and Spanish. And, um, and he writes an essay um, that somehow he, he and his friend, the two guys who are the, the pupils of this particular teacher, write essays um, that get confiscated by the Spanish government. By, they, their homes are raided. They find these essays um, a, about all the reasons why Cuba should be free and independent of Spain. And you know Jose Bartík gets hauled off as an example to all. Um, he's given um, you know a sentence, a, a criminal sentence. You know he has to go serve hard labor on the island of Pines, which is off the coast of Cuba to the to the south. Um, and there he's imprisoned. And and you know he would have died there had it not been for the fact that his father pulled every string he could pull to get him released. And to have him sent to Spain. So that was the, the idea. Well, we'll just make him an exile. And at least we'll save his life. And, and so he, he does achieve this. But another moment for, for Martí is that when he's in prison there, he is, you know, surrounded by people of the worst, quote, class. And he completely identifies with them. You know, he's working side by side with slave rebels. Um, he's working, who have been there for decades, at least one, one in particular, at least seems like he was there for a decade, an old man. Um, he sees how the Spanish government brings prostitutes for the prostitutes to, um, who are really, really poor women, um, to service the prisoners. Um, he, he's a young boy, wow. you know, he, he's traumatized, but also just radicalized by this. And he goes off to Spain. He ends up living and raising himself. He becomes a lawyer. He becomes a Freemason. He travels to France. He learns French. He ends up in the United States, um, where he um, is a correspondent for the biggest newspaper in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. Um, Wow,
0: he's succeeding professionally.
1: Big time. And he is there um, in the 1880s um, and establishes himself in New York City as the principal, um, most read journalist. In all of Spanish America, in all of what is then Latin America, because they're all free countries at that point, he's being read in Mexico, he's being read in Argentina. And what is he doing? He's actually reporting on things that nobody is talking about, not even in the United States. He's talking about how the United States is really undermining its own democracy through genocidal wars against Native American peoples, uh, through lynching. Martí was one of the first people to talk about lynching as, um, you know, lynching of, of black men as an affront to liberty. Um, And he is deeply critical of this because he's also awed by the potential of the United States. Um, All the immigrants that are coming, the diversity, their great desire to be free of the constraints that European society impose. With
0: respect to what he's writing about the U.S., is he writing yeah. that in English as well as the Spanish or just because you were saying his his yeah, audience. He
1: writes in Spanish. OK. And this is one of the reasons that we don't know him in this country. Yeah. Because of course, we're a bunch of ignoramuses who don't like to learn other <laughs> languages. You know, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. my feelings, I'm, I'm an
0: <laughs> example of that. And I apologize for <laughs> it. <laughs>
1: well, we're all products, you know, of our school system. So. Yeah. But my, he was a perfectionist. He spoke beautiful English, but he hated his accent. You know, he didn't want to like he spoke perfect French and he he had no problem speaking French, but he really he didn't want to have to speak in English. And he was very committed to the idea, even though he spent three fourths of his life outside of Cuba, that he was living for Cuba. And in fact, he becomes committed to Cuba in a new way because of the second major thing that makes Martí Martí. So the first we can say is all of that experience, the radicalization this idea of how the United States could be a different democracy, how Cuba should be the best democracy in the world, et cetera. He's, he's speaking to, he's got his, his column was published in 26 newspapers across Latin America. Wow. It's amazing. Amazing. So he's, he's world renowned, you know, and, um, and all that is the case. And Cuba launches in 1868, the first of three wars for abolition of slavery and for Cuban independence. And, By the 1870s, by 1878, when um, there's an end to the first war, it's 10 years long, the reason it ends is that the white guys, who were the leaders of not all of the officer corps, but represented about 60% of the officer corps of the liberating army, had convinced themselves that the Spanish campaign to to stoke the fears of a new Haiti in them might be right. And so they 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 literally signed a truce with um, the Spanish government and betrayed the ten years of warfare, betrayed independence, betrayed abolition of slavery, and um, to a one, wow. you know, pretty much the the black and, and mulatto leaders of the liberating army said no, and their principal voice was a man named Antonio Maceo, who eventually would be you know um, uh, uh, the general of all three wars, and he took. You know, dozens of bullets. He was a legendary figure, um, very humble, had been a coffee farmer in Oriente and, and had escaped at one point um, the repression um, and, and, you know, of the liberating movement um, in the 1870s you know, after, or rather in the 1880s. Martí's in New York, the truce has been signed, the efforts on the part of, of the remaining liberating army um, to, to hold to warfare against the Spanish. And in, in 1881, 1883, he leaves and he becomes a coffee farmer in Costa Rica. But he is the voice. He is the, the principal icon of the free Cuba that could be. And so the struggle then is uh, would be, the goal would be to unite what is Martí's leadership mm-hmm. to this extremely legendary black leadership really of the independent struggle. And to end the story, you know, that happens in the 1890s. Martí uh, leads the charge in what is the United States among very large Cuban communities, mostly of exiles, people who had fled for their political beliefs, who were against the independent, or rather against um, colonialism and for independence. They had suffered consequences. Um, There was also kind of economic disaster um, in, the, in the aftermath of the Ten Years' War, the first war for independence. So you get a lot of cigar makers that moved to New York, that moved to Florida, to Tampa, to Key West. And all these folks are all in favor of independence. So Martí organizes these people. And it's not just a, you know, a couple thousand, it's about 25,000 to 30,000 Cubans. Um, he creates a, 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 the Revolutionary Party, which is Partido Revolucionario um, Cubano, the PRC, the Cuban Revolutionary Party. Um the he supports union rights. He launches a discourse and a, a narrative of how Cuba can be the greatest democracy in the world if it puts aside race and it embraces the idea that Maceo had already articulated this this black general had already articulated, which is that Cubans are more than black or white, they are Cuban. And because he's white, Martí is white, mm-hmm. he can convince some white people that, you know, maybe he's right. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. That's where the myth comes in, because, you know, during that whole process and after his death for decades, white racists in Cuba um, have long, you know, tried to say, well, you know, you can't complain about how you're black and you suffered discrimination because, you know, we're all raceless here. And to talk about your particular problem is really to indict what it means to be Cuban. Um, and we're, you know, to talk about race at all is to be a racist. And so it's sadly, um, that is why I use the word myth, because Martí was very strategic in launching the story of a Cuba that could be freed and making that appeal to everybody. But in, the, in his absence, which would turn out to be pretty quick after in 1895 he dies in, uh, in battle, um, you have the articulation of all of this really racist interpretation, self-serving interpretations. Of, of this view of Cuba as raceless by white folks who don't want to change anything.
0: We're still know? having and some of those conversations here in America, aren't we? Got
1: it, right? Yeah. It used to be when I would say this kind of stuff in class, we'd read Jose Marti's stuff, I would say, he wrote a, an essay called My Race, in which he talks about how nobody has any race, and you know, to say that you are Cubans, to say all of your rights and blah, blah. And all the kids would just stare at me because and we're talking 20 years ago. They would stare at me because I would say, this is really one of the problems we have in the United States. You know, we, where you have black people who have been saying for decades that we have experienced the accumulation of the disadvantages, legal disadvantages and social disadvantages that accrue to us because of our race, because we are black. And white folks saying, no, that you're just being racist. You know? <laughs> and and so <laughs> would just say to me, Oh, I don't know those folks, you know. And it has been refreshing, although distressing as well, right? Yeah, but now, yeah. now I don't have to even ask. People are immediately saying, Well, this is Jose Martí was saying that back then. You know, he should have realized that if he was trying to fight racism, he was reinforcing the possibilities that white people who had benefited from slavery, who had benefited from their accumulation of legal advantages, that they would pick that up and they would run with it. And, I, and I, I'm so happy that I don't have to argue this anymore. But on the other hand, it is a testament to where we are as a country.
0: It is, you're right. And, and I think people are more aware of it. Um, why don't we take a short break and then talk about Cuba after Spain. The histories of the Caribbean nations are fascinating their volatile mixes of indigenous peoples, colonialism, slavery, foreign interference, and fading empires, revolutions, the rise of the United States and its occupations, then communism, and various types of dictatorships. In our podcast, we've had the pleasure of speaking with several scholars about the history of women and NGOs in Haiti, the history of Haiti's revolution, and how world powers first boycotted Haiti and then interfered in its national affairs, and also the history of Puerto Rico, a nation without its own country. The links to those conversations are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Guerra. Professor Guerra we all know the story of Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders and America's liberation of Cuba from Spain in 1898. And I use the word liberation in quotation marks. That story has many layers, but I don't want to talk about the battles or how the war started, the battleship made, none of that. What I want to know is this. After 1898, after we invaded and conquered um, Cuba, did the U.S. help establish democratic institutions in Cuba? You see where I, what, what, the reason I would ask that. Here we are. We, we conquered Germany. We invade Germany and Japan. After World War II, we helped establish democratic institutions. How does that compare with what happened in 1898 and afterwards with
1: America's presence? Right. Well, we, we had no intention of establishing um, democratic institutions. When the U.S. military invaded Cuba um, in 1898 in that, in that summer, the it, really the goal um, was effectively to steal the victory of the revolution over Spain from the Cubans. And it was very clear um, that the Cubans were going to win. Um, it was also clear that the Americans would have been completely, you know, demolished as, as a presence, even upon Palm Landing um, in Daiquiri and Oriente, had it not been for the Cuban troops who defended the shoreline. So at every level, you know, the the purpose there was completely distinct from how we like to think about it. We also ensured that sovereignty was transferred directly from Spain to Washington to the United States, and then for four years, um, it was not. Cuba didn't
0: become an independent state.
1: No, it became um, a territory of the United States along with the Philippines and Puerto Rico in 1898. Mm -hmm. And we, in fact, barred um, the Cubans, any representation of the Revolutionary Army, the Liberating Army, the PRC, from participating in the peace treaty in Paris. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, so you can imagine how horrified and how quickly the Cubans realized they had been deceived. Um, And so the four years of the first US military occupation are really an effort on the part of the United States um, First, to keep as much colonial law as they could possibly keep, so as to reinstitute the foundation of economic growth um, for the Spanish um, and, and transfer that engine of economic growth to U.S. companies. And that was plantations. So the main method uh, for 30 years of warfare against Spain was to burn plantations and to end the plantation system as the first step towards ending slavery, the legacies of slavery, the inability of even the abolition of slavery to undo the um, massive discrepancy of wealth and opportunity uh, that was the, the axis of colonialism. Well, that all got blown to shreds as a goal when the United States arrives. And so the, the U.S. First, military, first U.S. military occupation really um, is emblematic of what we would do from that point forward. And it's very foundational. Um, We kept all the Spanish judges in place, at least as many as we could possibly keep. Um, That would have been like keeping Nazi judges appointed by Hitler in place. And in in Cuba's case, um, Cuba, the Spanish, in order to try to beat the the morale out of the local citizenry, had established concentration camps in Cuba. Cuba from 1896- concentration camps? Yep, from 1896 to 1898, um, and Cuba had about 900,000 people um, at the time of the 1894, the last war. By 1898, approximately 200,000 had died in these concentration camps. Oh, so my that you would goodness.
0: Have, wow. Yes,
1: that you would have Spanish judges or Spanish officials kept in place who were responsible for these uh, deaths is extraordinary. And then you have the reality that most of the military officers. America
0: did this out of convenience sake to not disrupt the established system or is this something that they wanted to reinforce that oppression of locals
1: well they had a very specific goal in mind
0: Uh establishing
1: re-establishing the plantation and getting a judicial system that would enable u.s companies to buy out the land from underneath the Cubans. and so if you keep the spanish judges in place then you can you can enable that process, and they did. They what these Spanish judges did, and those who were appointed by the American military, um, was to say if you don't have um, you know the record that sh- says that you are the owner of this land, then it's public land, and we'll just sell it to the highest bidder. And that meant um, that you know literally tens of thousands of owners of land, it's small farms, etc., um, who hadn't had title title because because it was burned in the war, or had never had title because they had lived on it for so many generations that they common law under Spain protected them. They lost their land. And the biggest losers were horribly, tragically, in Oriente province, where the 30 years of struggle had emerged and where people had sacrificed the most. Maceo is from then there. By then, he's dead. Um, But what happened? By 1905, 96% of Farmers who were black or mulatto lost their land to U.S. companies. And Oriente, oh, which had boy. never been a hotbed of sugar production, you know, I've been talking about that for a long time now. Oriente, the far eastern area, that's where you get the largest U.S. plantations. United Fruit Plantation, for instance. So the biggest investors, you know, they, uh, U.S. investors, are the beneficiaries of the U.S. military occupation. Um, there's also a racial dimension to this. Um, the, the the American government was staffed in Cuba by the great heroes of the genocidal campaigns against the Indians. So we have been fighting, you know, against the Indians take their land officially since 1872. The Indian Wars end in 1891, and people like General Wood, great you know hero of the Indian Wars, is the military governor of Cuba that presides over this from 1899 to 1902. So to end the story. Um, What sets Cuba up for constant political and military interventions into its political process and democratization is that Cubans fought tooth and nail, um, not with arms, but with words and constant pressure and street protests for the Americans to allow them to have a constitutional convention, um, to elect their delegates on the basis of, of a free vote, one man, one vote. The Americans said, no, only white people can vote. Then they said, no, only people with property can vote. And in the end, they conceded the one man, one vote. Uh, But the Americans said, we won't leave unless one third of the Constitutional Convention gets to be Spanish. (laughs) The loyalists, right? So we backed up the most conservative side. And that Constitution, when it's all said and done, would have an amendment written by um, the senator from Colorado, Platt. Um, he would he would write this amendment to the Cuban Constitution. It is has to be adopted in 1901, or the Americans don't. When you it. say it has
0: to be adopted, is that America is there with in a military presence and say you have to do this?
1: You have to do this. And okay. If what it,
0: what is that uh, amendment?
1: So it's called the Platt Amendment. Uh huh. Named after our man from Colorado. Um, And the Platt Amendment says that the um, Cubans must step aside every time the United States considers that its interests are jeopardized by the Cubans. Or, yeah.
0: If that's the case, then Cuba is not really a country. Wow.
1: Yeah. So the Platt Amendment um, really launches – Uh, you know, at least the next 30 years, I like to think of Cuban history in 30 year segments in, in the 20th century. And from, you know, the time the Americans leave in 1902 to 1933, it is a constant story of either direct political intervention, we get another US military occupation, 1906 to 1909, we land troops various times. By the 1920s, we have a man named Colonel Enoch Crowder off the coast, of Cuba on a warship who's literally telegraphing the president of Cuba what he needs to do. Um, and so not surprisingly, we have a massive social revolution in 1933 against this neocolony, um, against the state that, that collaborates with U.S. investors and collaborates with Washington mm-hmm. for U.S. interests against the interests of the majority of Cubans. Um, and we have, as a result of that revolution, which is very tragic, we have a coup. That the United States engineered in 1934, January of 1934, um, the coup would be led by a man we, whose name we probably all know, Fulgencio Batista. Mm-hmm. And Fulgencio Batista dominates the political scene from 34 to really 1959. We you know, we have the first sort of regime of Batista is 34 to 44. Um, then we have a period of kind of democratization. A lot of people call it a democratic experiment because... For the first time, the United States really can't intervene in Cuba because, you know, it's got a war to fight. <laughs> <laughs> and so Cuba gets this kind of breather from really 44 to 52. Um, they get a new constitution. They get really free elections for the first time. Sugar prices are really high. There's investment at all different levels in a middle class um there is an expansion of radio and television like you wouldn't believe Cuba has the first television um stations in 1947 oh, um, wow. 11 by 52 massive media you know the independent media and unions um sugar unions in particular very powerful um even even in the context of of not of having a US US companies dominate the sugar industry so the end of the story there is that Batista would put an end to all of that in 1952 with the full backing of the United States. And, and so we get Batista again, 52 to 59, and we get another revolutionary process, which you know by the time it comes to power in January of 59 in the shape of the 26th of July movement led by Fidel Castro, has ver- almost 100 years of struggle behind it. You know, And the, the, the legitimacy of Fidel is not his charisma. I mean, could you guys give me a break with that? You know, it's, <laughs> it's not. Oh, wow. It's the fact that he had nothing to make up. You know, people had lived and breathed, you know, the struggle of Cuba for freedom and very heartily were convinced that it wasn't the American people, it was the United States government and its alliance with US companies that was preventing Cuba from being what it could have been. Um, so people are so committed to that that in the end I think the majority of Cubans, perhaps not the middle class, but the majority or, or the upper class clearly, but the, the majority of Cubans um, were very committed to radical change, even if that meant they didn't even know what it meant. But you know, with the embrace of communism. That's a,
0: that's of- a great segue for our yeah. next segment. We'll be back after a short break to talk about communist Cuba.
2: We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you.
1: Professor
0: Guerra, if we look at the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, and there are many others. For example, in 1979, the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Once you start reading a little more in depth, you realize how complex it was. And the movement, you sort of alluded to that, wasn't really specifically towards that outcome. Not everyone had that specific outcome in mind. There was a lot of betrayal. Sort of the the, the revolutionary ethos was was betrayed. Um, what I want to know is, did Castro promise something specific, and did he deliver on that, or was this a revolution gone wry?
1: Well, Fidel Castro committed himself um, multiple times to a non-communist in fact even an anti-communist uh, nationalist state that really was, yes and he did that repeatedly not only in over the course of 1959 um but he did that for 3 years prior when he was actually in the mountains and he had just a few hundred guys there but he had thousands of activists in the cities across the island who were really leading the revolution for him um and were happy to be anonymous in that in that process and also took the brunt of of the violence um, and the brutality of the Batista regime. So when he comes to power, you had in 59, and it's really a unique moment, you had the United States really incapable of figuring out what to do because Mm -hmm. there were millions of people on the streets at the drop of a hat. I mean, every time the United States um, government would accuse um, the Cuban government, the revolution of being communist because it wanted to pass um, land reform. It wanted to pass reforms that would, for instance, transfer the, the ownership of, of public utilities to the government and make them um, price fairly, et cetera. These are very minor reforms. Every time the U.S. government would say anything, you know, to accuse the Cuban government of being communist or Fidel being communist, you know, the drop of hat, you get a million people in Havana, you have tens of thousands of different cities across the island. And it was really this unarmed, you know, rally that consolidates the power of, of what is the revolutionary government. What ends up turning the tide there is uh, the fact that Fidel would become increasingly convinced of his own power. He would tighten grip on power by really just sidelining, discrediting, and marginalizing um, the people responsible for his rise, um, who were liter- literally Democrats and, and you know, very, very committed revolutionaries, but non-communist. And his brother is a member of the communist youth since the 1950s. There are a lot of efforts on the part of his inner circle to demolish any archives, any knowledge of who the communists are, and Fidel would, would, would be capable. Um, by 1960 of, if he needed to, pulling out support from the Soviets because of those connections. And in that process, uh, Cubans, to be honest, between 59 and 1960, you know, they're seeing the United States constantly trying to accuse them of, of being undermining, you know, global democracy and being communist. And most Cubans, this is the great irony, come out against U.S. intervention, against any U.S. role in Cuba and total support, unconditional support for Fidel because they don't want communism and they don't want the United States to accuse them of communism.
0: Oh, and so Wow.
1: Which is ironic and quite... I know, it is, yeah. yeah. But yes, that's the reality. And so this is why it took Fidel so long to admit that he was a communist. And he really wasn't, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Come out and kind of say... But what happens between 1960 and really the the break with the United States, which is 1961 at the Bay of Pigs, um, because people are very committed to rebuking the United States, they are all in favor of what Fidel says needs to be done. And he begins to attack the press, the independent press that tries to create criticism, critical spaces, um, some concern about the communists that are rising without having done anything in the revolution. Um, prior, they're rising in the ranks of the military. Who are these people? You're saying you're not communist. So he eliminates that by gathering to himself the support of the people. And the people celebrate the closing and the government takeover of hundreds of newspapers, television stations, radio stations, really between January of 1960 and May of 1960. And so then the government, Fidel, has all the micro- microphones to himself. And at the very moment that that happens, you know, the United States, instead of um, doing something else, is figuring out how we can invade. And, and so that really, that was, a, a, as we all probably agree, um, a stupid, arrogant um, decision born of hubris. But it galvanized, you know, the, the, the Bay of Pigs, which was a surprise to the United States. But, you know, Cuba, the Cuban government knew about the training camps in Central America. They knew about CIA recruitment. It was in the press in Cuba. So people were waiting for the U.S. to intervene. And when they send these folks, you know, at the Bay of Pigs, it's a wash. There are 400,000 militiamen, you know, and women who are backing this revolutionary government. And I think that, you know, after that, that incredible triumph over the United States, you know, Fidel gets to ride the wave of unconditionality for quite some time. And it really isn't until, you know, two, three years later where communism, as we see it today in many respects, you know, 60 years or almost 60 years of it, really communism, state control of you, the economy, of your decision making, of your identity, and repercussions if you're not politically loyal, all that really doesn't hit people until it's really there by the mid-60s. And, and that's where we have a much more complex story of, of you know, the popularity in quotes of the state to the degree that it, it, it was popular and legitimate
0: what role have cuban expats particularly in america played in cuba's internal um politics and and uh, based on one of my readings i noticed that they were actually active actually you alluded to it jose Marti. Uh, even uh, in the 1800s and early 1900s so it's not just in sort of opposition to Castro and has that has that involvement been positive for the Cuban people in Cuba?
1: Well I think it depends on the period you're looking at but certainly if you're thinking about what happens you know in the 60s and how do we get the emergence of a far-right exile community with the full attention of Washington um, the story begins with the fact that the first, 15,000 who leave Cuba in 59 are Batistianos. And they get here with all their money. Um, you know, the the um, get here with their nine million bucks. Um, they continue to have a huge presence. Um, but dad, Rafael, was, you know, Batista's right-hand man since the early 40s. And so the Batistianos created um, a context in which, you know, they in Miami, in South Florida, and in Washington, etc., get to shape the story and they also get to control the economy of South Florida and, and they're, they're, that's important because between 60 and 65 the CIA establishes the largest uh, base outside of its own headquarters in the history of the CIA and it is giving out jobs
0: s- establishes that in South Florida is that yes what you mean? in
1: what is today um, the Miami Metro Zoo that mm-hmm. was once the University of Miami's property And it also explains the politicization of the University of Miami to to even to this day um, in favor of the, quote, community, which is very wealthy exiles who take very hardline stances against Cuba. But, yeah, so they were handing out jobs. I mean, they were they were employing people up to 15,000 per month. So lots of Cubans who arrive in Miami end up working um, for the CIA and trying to subvert Cuba. That becomes an industry. And then Johnson shuts it down in 65, but you get a lot of CIA sympathizing um, people um, who, you know, have, have lots of friends in the exile community, and you get another, I would say, 15, almost 20 years in which... The exile community um, really deepens its commitment, some, some of it, because it's not all of it. It's a diverse community. Mm-hmm, but in mm-hmm. South Florida, there is a very active um, community of people who in the in the 60s would um, launch all kinds of incursions and sabotage on plantations, you know, cutting electrical lines, doing that kind of work in Cuba. Um, however, by the 70s, and this is something we often don't realize, That ends. It it ends. And and they turn the guns on each other. So, in the exile community in the United States, both in New Jersey and in South Florida, in the 70s and the 19 to about the mid 1980s, you have anybody who is courageous enough to say, hey, you know what? We have to stop all of this. And we have to think about what is best for Cuba. And we have to establish some kind of dialogue with Cuba. We have to stop being on a war footing. You get, if you said that, you were subject to harassment at best and to getting killed at worst worst um, bombs are going off all over the place i mean we by
0: by cuban expats in america
1: yeah and the targets mm-hmm. are other cubans or often if the federal government like the carter administration is seen to be, quote, allied with Castro because it's trying to open a consular service in Cuba. Maybe it's trying to normalize relations. The federal government becomes a target as well. So we, we've we had, you know, the FBI building bombed in Miami. Um, we had the postal post office bombed in Miami. We had the Miami airport bombed. We've had, you know, this is lots of bombs and, and, and individual Cubans who worked on behalf of the Carter administration, who were Cuban-Americans, you know, rooted in Miami, um, like the, probably the most famous of those who your audience might know is Padron, the great, you know, cigar maker, owns a cigar making factory in Miami. He did four, or rather, he did multiple trips to Cuba to help the Carter administration negotiate an opening of relations. Um, And a normalization and some kind of you know compensation program for U.S. citizens who had lost property in Cuba. Well, he had his cigar factory bombed four times. Oh wow! In Miami, so this was a very serious. The the, I mean, this is the violence of the Miami um, right wing is a serious um, violence. I'm going to ask a question
0: here, and it's really a question. It's not a suggestion. It's a question. It sounds like the cuban expat community actually is a reason that we have not normalized we had not normalized relations with cuba until the obama administration and my background backdrop to that is how we normalized relations with vietnam almost relatively sooner am i is that a yeah. right do you think that's a correct assessment
1: yes clearly i mean you know the 80s um, is a period when the Cubans dropped their weapons in Miami and the Reagan campaign in, in, in 1980 um, and then beyond um, organizes um, a kind of civilian representation of the far right perspective, which is the Cuban American National Foundation from about 1981 to the mid 90s. Um, and in that period, which is the height of its power, you get the establishment and retrenchment of all of these um, policies that are very hardline against Cuba. That limit flights to Cuba, that um, enable to the degree that you could send wow. any money to Cuba in the 90s or even to the present, that enable only um, certain agencies to be able to do that. So you have an economic and political investment in the status quo with regard to um, U.S. relations with Cuba, and you also have the ability of um, the the Cuban American National Foundation to mobilize votes for the Republican Party. Um, I would say that even though the violence falls out of the picture. In the 90s, you know, I mean, I lived in Miami in the 80s. My parents continued to live there until my father's death in 2014. He lived there. Um, my experience, you know, intimidation was a huge part of the reason why you get um, the situation of, of most um, Cubans who will speak publicly always supporting um, the farthest right position when it comes to Cuba policy. um Interesting. Fear mobilizes you. You don't, I mean, this has been documented by FIU's annual um, uh, survey of Cuban Americans, where, for instance, in 2001, when they were surveyed, um, you know, 90%, almost 90% said they would be in favor of eliminating entirely or uh, disabling the embargo. And then the next question was, well, how many of you would be willing to say this publicly? And it was less than 5%.
0: You know, let's let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Guerra as we get into the perspective. (music) Professor Guerra, you're working on a fifth book, uh, and I think it's your fourth book specifically on Cuba, uh, if I'm correct. It's called Patriots and Traitors in Cuba. What is this book about?
1: It's really about having to live in an environment where Fidel said as of 1961, really until the time of his death, that there were only two sides and you had to pick a side. And so you couldn't be neutral. You couldn't be apolitical. And you certainly couldn't be critical of the Cuban revolutionary state or its policies or its leadership. Um, and if you were in, in Cuba, um, you were a traitor. You were an enemy of the state. You were an anti-Cuban. You were a gusano. You were, and so how is this kind of like
0: you're either with us or against us? You're
1: with us or against us. So a lot of it is about, you know, what is it like to live in that kind of a society, especially as that emerges not just as a speech or a set of slogans, mm-hmm. but as a part of the school system. You know, how do you deal with that? Um, how do you deal with how the Cuban state enforces that binary and things like music? or fashions, um, your attitudes, what are you supposed to say and do in certain contexts. I mean, I'm trying to give um, a more expansive understanding of really communist culture, both its development as well as its consolidation and the myriad ways that Cubans attempted to poke holes into what would otherwise have been a monolithic Um, existence um, directed by the state and its leaders. So
0: So what you're saying is that like in Cuba, uh, based on what you're saying, uh, you couldn't just say, okay, I'm not going to be political. I'm just going to live my life. I don't want to get involved. That wasn't good enough. You had to actually actively support or be somehow involved in the government.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And it's a gradual process. I mean, in an earlier book, um, Visions of Power, I was desperate to figure out, you know, when does this happen? So I did a lot of work and I've discovered that 1968, for instance, is a big year. It's the year when you have to be a member of all state organizations. By then there aren't, you know, beauty salons and there aren't chess clubs. Um, or the Boy Scouts or anything like that that is not run by the state. Everything is run by the state. Um, but the fact that you had to suddenly become a member of the committee for the defense of the Revolution, which is a block committee. you know it's on every block in Cuba. You have to pay your dues. If you don't go to whatever opportunities they're offering like let's go to a rally and support a Fidel or let's clean the street or let's give blood, if you don't do that, you the CDR is keeping a political evaluation on you that you never oh, wow. get and they're sharing that with your school. Then they're sharing that years later with possible workplace. You could either go to the university or not go to the university, depending on what your political evaluation is. So this, this kind of, that's what, what the, the real reality, uh, the real, not, you know, the mythical, but the, the real day-to-day reality of, of Cuba's communist system meant. And, and so, yeah, you, you could not do that. You also, you know, legally, you couldn't go out and, and organize a protest. You couldn't even have more than five people in your house after 9 p.m. Um, unless the CDR approved it. Wow. But if you do have time for a one-line, what do I want Americans to know about Cuba? I would want them to know that they have a hell of a lot to learn from individual Cuban citizens and not so much from the Cuban state. Um, I have basically gotten a second Ph.D. every time I've been in Cuba for more than a month. Um, and have often been there for as long as a year or three or four months. And Cubans are extraordinary in, in their analysis, and the acumen of their knowledge about the world, even as they have struggled day and night to get information independently of the government. So I have great admiration for democracy, as it already exists in the hearts and minds of Cuban, Cubans.
0: Professor Guerra, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, We're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our
1: news.